This Knowledge at Wharton podcast was produced in conjunction with EY's Global Private Equity Center. For more information, please visit ey.com slash private equity. Thanks to Steve Samet and Michael Rogers from EY for joining us for part two of this podcast about uh, the current and future state of private equity. Uh, Michael, of course, is EY's Global Deputy Private Equity Leader, and Steve's a senior fellow and lecturer here at Wharton, and he closely follows private equity and is also involved directly in the business. So uh, we want to we talk about what's happening outside the U.S., and uh, I thought uh, I, I noticed there was an interesting quote uh, from Maria Pinelli, who is EY's Global Vice Chair of Strategic Growth Markets. Uh, and she, she said that a combination of, this is a quote, a combination of good corporate earnings growth and a lack of alternative investment options means that risk appetite is focused on equities and IPOs in particular. Global IPO activity this year could be in the strongest since 2007 and the start of the financial crisis if macroeconomic conditions remain stable. Uh, financial sponsors continue to favor IPO exits and more Chinese listings materialize. <clears throat> so let's focus on the role of China in all this. Would each of you offer your views on how changes in China have affected the market and will affect them in the future with Alibaba's big IPO, of course, being the elephant in the boat right now? China's always interesting. Uh, and there's a very important piece of background in this because uh, in our last broadcast, we spoke of pent-up demand. Uh, I can't think of a better example of pent-up demand in China uh, because uh, the IPO market was essentially shut down by government decree throughout 2013. Uh, so there was a backlog of interest uh, and an overall improvement uh, uh, in the global economy um, uh, during that time period. So a lot of the activity that we're seeing in China uh, is, uh, to some extent, the opening of the, of the floodgates. Uh, 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 there's also, d- despite the, from our perspective, m- modest decline in uh, growth of China's GDP, uh, th- that is still a very significant momentum uh, behind that. Uh, uh, the offerings like Alibaba have captured the imagination of a lot of investors worldwide. Uh, so th- the stage is set for tremendous um, uh, continued activity. That's the background. Uh, uh, Mike, I, I don't know where EY's analysis is on this. I, I'd like to, to hear that, and then we can talk a little bit more ab- about the, the direct impact. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Steve. I, I think that, uh, you know, clearly IPOs are, the, are very much, you know, the preferred excerpt route in China and likely will remain so for the foreseeable future. And as you touched on, what the moratorium did, however, was, was to get more PE funds thinking about alternative exit strategies in some ways. Uh, during that window, when they couldn't exit, they had to look at trade sales and secondaries. Um, you know, domestic firms have have cash to spend on buying assets from PE, and given the volatility of China's market in recent quarters, you know, a full exit via M&A looks, looks more attractive than it did when equities were, were rising constant, consistently over that period. So 
But you know, nonetheless, China's PE market, I think, is defined by a large degree uh, by minority stake growth capital, as you touched on. And, and many family owners and entrepreneurs see an IPO as their ultimate goal, just from a personal perspective, a pride perspective almost. Uh, as a result, uh, PE, I think, will remain an important driver of these Chinese listings. And you touched on this a little bit. Uh, because of that pent-up demand, I, I think we, one of the local research organizations that we follow mentioned that they thought there was over 750 companies that have submitted IPO registrations uh, when the market opened in January. About 40% of those were backed by PE. So you see a significant influence from PE in that market. Um, that's a larger percentage than we've historically seen in, in the U.S. or Europe. Uh, and I think given the backlog of these companies waiting to IPO and the cautious stance of regulators in approving new listings, I mean, it's going to take several years uh, from our perspective before the pipeline normalizes in China. That's very consistent with ongoing research that I'm, I'm doing with the student team here, uh, uh, those numbers. Uh, th there's something else, too, uh, for... Uh, people unfamiliar with uh, the Chinese IPO market to understand. And that is, unlike uh, the NASDAQ or, or AIM, uh, which are tolerant of pre, not only pre-profitable companies, but pre-revenue companies listing, uh, in the emerging markets, and particularly in China, uh, the bar is actually fairly high. Uh, companies have had to have had to enjoy at least three years of profitability at fairly significant levels in order to qualify for listing. So from an operational perspective, the companies that are listing uh, have uh, much more of a story to report and are likely to be more stable uh, in the aftermarket, uh, you know, providing the market as a whole uh, stays well. Uh, the Chinese government has been very cautious and very conscious of wanting to protect the integrity of its markets. Uh, and in a discussion I had with the head of the Chinese SEC uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I, I commented that uh, the, the national interest in China in promoting uh, the growth of high technology and, and more proprietary uh, technologies uh, in some ways ran counter to uh, the, the listing policies of the country. Uh, and he commented that that was quite, quite right, uh, that uh, at the moment uh, the government is more concerned uh, about protecting the interests of investors on the one hand uh, and the global confidence in Chinese markets, and therefore wanted only those companies that could demonstrate that they were knew how to run their businesses. So uh, this, this is a dynamic that is very different than what we see in the United States, uh, and I, I think will play out in a very positive way and will maintain confidence in the Chinese markets. So the Chinese are saying, in effect, we realize we only have one chance to make a first impression on investors? Uh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's one way of looking <laughs> at it, yes. Okay. Um, Pinelli, uh, uh, to get to another question here, also says that a consistently high number of companies are choosing to go public on exchanges right across Asia Pacific. So would you please comment on how you view the landscape in Asia apart from China? Mike, would you take that first? Sure. I, I think PE continues to expand across the 
Asia-Pacific region, and a big part of that is a lot of companies trying to move to where the consumers are, quite frankly. You've seen some very high-profile deals uh, move in that direction. Uh, I think so far this year, PE firms have announced, uh, I think our research showed, about $25 billion uh, of uh, deals across Asia-Pac, excluding China. These are deals outside of China. So following that growing, growing middle class. Yes, exactly, and consumerism that's out there. And that puts, uh, I think this year on pace for a 7% increase over last year and be the best year since 2010. So firms are clearly making uh, investments in that arena. Uh, today we've seen a handful of major piggyback deals listed on the regional exchanges, you know, uh, you know outside Hong Kong, China, Australia. Um, however, as they, I think as they continue to grow and mature, they'll increasingly become visible alternatives to Hong Kong and Shenzhen and give investors a range of options in terms of where to list. And I, we, we just continue to see that uh, a big trend on, under uh, you know, co-listings, uh, multiple markets where they're listing in, in, you know, to get access to the markets. They want to uh, sell their stock where they're selling their product, quite frankly. That's, that's always a good strategy, uh, uh, especially if you're expecting your stock to move among middle-class buyers. Uh, they, uh, well, as Peter Lynch so long ago recommended, buy what you understand. And uh, if you're talking about consumer products, uh, people are familiar with the brand, they're familiar with the company, and um, are going to support those stocks as well. Uh, this diversification, I think, is an important uh, factor. Uh, by diversification, I mean across multiple exchanges in, in listing. Uh, it, what it signals are a couple of things. Uh, increased harmonization in terms of securities oversight, uh, because any company that lists basically has to uh, conform to the, the standards of the higher, um, uh, the higher standards of one particular exchange over another. Uh, uh, th that's in terms of securities compliance. Uh, but it also means that if I'm listing in Shenzhen uh, and uh, if I want to list on AIM or NASDAQ, um, I I'm listing a company that is performing according to the standards of Shenzhen or Shanghai. Uh, and uh, the this brings to market a type of offering that uh, is is new and unique in a sense of performance, uh, and that that inspires confidence as well. So there's an interdependency here that I think may stretch, uh, may improve the uh, uh, strength of of markets globally. Uh, so this this I think is a positive trend, and it's only going to help private equity. Okay, let's uh, let's move over to Latin America. Um, well, the outlook there for private equity, I, I'm thinking of Brazil in particular because, again, Brazil's the elephant in the boat there. Um, it started out pretty bullish, I believe, in early uh, 2014, but Brazil at least had had a little bit of an economic slowdown and there were currency issues and that sort of thing. Um, and so I think there at least the PE market proved more sluggish in some areas than many had anticipated. But recent reports are suggesting that fundraising for PE and venture capital firms this year uh, were very positive. Uh, about $3.5 billion was collected for the region in the first half of 2014, again, according to uh, uh, the Latin American Private Equity and Venture Capital Association in this case. Uh, so uh, would you, each of you offer your views on Latin America? Well, Mike, in as much as you're there at the moment, uh, <laughs> I'll give you first dibs. 
All right. Well, thanks, guys. I am in Bogota, Colombia today, and we're visiting with a number of clients down here, and so it's really uh, um, you know, a great opportunity to get a pulse of this market. But I think that overall, just kind of an overarching statement, uh, it seems to be in some ways a little bit of a bifurcation in the market in some ways. We, we see a little bit of slowdown from Brazil, um, had a pretty good start to 2014, seems to have moderated a bit. Well, at the same time, you know, the, the Pacific Alliance countries uh, seem to be, um, you know, doing much better, um, and they've uh, maybe benefiting from the policy issues that they've taken on and the improvements they've made in regulations and, 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 and you know, in search of trade. Uh, so we're, we're fairly bullish on the Pacific Alliance countries, and in particular, we, you know, we really uh, are, have been impressed with Colombia and what they've done down here and how they've attracted capital. But, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the uh, Latin America – and many other emerging markets are experiencing a measure of economic slowdown. Uh, slowing domestic demand and currency devaluation are challenges facing this region, as you touched on. And, you know, Brazil fell into the recession in the second quarter of the year. Uh, but I think a lot of funds are taking long-term views and acting accord- accordingly uh, because the secular growth trends remain on an upward trajectory. The growth of the middle class continues. We've touched on that. Um, perhaps you know, maybe more importantly, private equity penetration in Latin America is just such a small fraction of what it is in the U.S. and Europe, uh, especially in the, in the uh, you know next-tier firms, if you will, um, beyond Brazil, like Colombia, Mexico, Chile, where GPs are putting increased attention, and uh, you know, and, and the regular reforms are opening up these countries, as I touched on, to increased investment. And, you know, I think for that reason, the global GPs remain interested in the region and they continue to fund firm, you know, fund firms and, and uh, with differentiated approaches, um, compelling value proposition, and, and established teams and track records. I, I think we've seen some great deals uh, down here, with, uh, you know, Witness Advent International uh, recently uh, closing a large fund, uh, and they've done a number of deals here, right here in Colombia, and been very successful with that. So they, you know, I think they will actually have a better environment to invest because valuations are a little lower. There's some larger companies out there that, that uh, maybe some of the strategics have stepped away from. Uh, so the industry has seen a lot of capital flow in the region over the last several years, and I, I think it's imperative now that, that these folks demonstrate that they can gain returns that are attractive in the marketplace, and we're just starting to see the first wave of exits. In fact, I'd refer folks to our our most recent uh, Latin American exit study, which just came out a month or two back, uh, called Great Expectation, What's Next for Latin American Private Equity? And in there we talk a lot about uh, the exit process and um, you know, the beginning of the, the monetization of the initial investments that were made over the last few years. So I, I, we're, we're pretty uh, supportive and, and high on, uh, on Latin America, particularly the Pacific Alliance countries, I think. I, I agree completely uh, with uh, Michael's comments, and I'd go so far as to say uh, the uh, universe of limited partners seems to be agreeing as well, uh, because in uh, that same uh, Latin America Venture Capital Association, or LAVCA, uh, report, which, by the way, I, I want to say very proudly that those studies originated here at Wharton in concert with uh, with LAVCA, uh, uh, what... Um, uh, what we, uh, what seems to be the case right now, is that uh, limited partners who've been polled 
um, have almost uniformly expressed interest in in reinvesting. And what they're hearing for the first time is that a number of parties that had never been uh, active or invested in Latin American-oriented PE funds are now considering deploying capital for that purpose. So there is a momentum in place. Uh, and interestingly enough, this this is part of the counter-cyclical story that we mentioned earlier. Uh, I, uh, just as things are s- slowing down, private equity is heating up. Um, and why, you might ask? Well, valuations are probably good. Companies are going to be looking for alternative sources of capital. Uh, and uh, the next couple of years, from an operational perspective, should be very strong. Uh, and I do agree, even despite that, we're seeing, uh, as Mike points out, uh, some very interesting exits uh, in play. Uh, Steve, would you give us a sketch of the private equity landscape in India? I know you're familiar with that that country. And, uh, and how the election of uh, the new prime minister, Narendra Modi, could affect markets given his reputation as a as a pro-business politician and the kind of structural changes he made in the state where he was the uh, governor. Or, or right. The, yes. Okay. Well, in much the same way that, that Mike is in Bogota, uh, I, I returned from India last night after being there for six weeks. Uh, so, yes, I do have some immediate observations. Uh, uh, first, first of all, uh, the private equity practitioners, the general partners, um, I, I think would be would would complain about the fundraising trends, and at the same time they would complain about the valuations that they have to pl- pay in order to participate uh, in the market. Uh, so uh, we're starting off uh, at a platform from a platform of adjusted expectations, uh, and this was uh, despite the downturn in the Indian economy. Uh, that we saw up into the elections, and things are only gradually uh, improving. Having said that, uh, there uh, there's a lot of faith and uh, hopefulness right now that uh, Prime Minister Modi is going to turn things around. Uh, he's uh, has a number of longer-term visions. He's focusing on some of the areas that have been problematic in the Indian economy, um, most notably uh, the the issue of corruption. Uh, and uh, corruption is a horrible friction on the practice of private equity because uh, it slows down transactions. Uh, it um, disqualifies many transactions because the private equity funds simply will not play uh, under those circumstances. Now, so this, this this is a period of confidence rebuilding. Uh, and I, I think when we begin to see some signs, uh, the limited partner world will be reinvigorated, and we may start seeing some uh, more activity in, in, uh, in transactional activity among PE funds. So uh, on the whole, I'm I'm uh, fairly uh, uh, confident that uh, in India the trends in India will restore to really what they had been going back four or five years ago. Yeah, thank you. And and obviously uh, Steve's had some on the ground uh, experience there recently. I mean, our our view from you know, a little bit afar because it's been a, a few months since I've been uh, over to India uh, is that what we hear from a lot of our folks that we deal with is that. 
it's a little bit of a fits and starts market, if you will, a, kind of a love and a hate, right? Because the, uh, you know, you know, the, just the the funds, uh, the first several waves of the PE investors that went there, some of them get frustrated and they, they kind of give up on give up on it just because of the complexity of the market and uh, you know some of the bureaucracy and so those sorts of things. And then then another wave will get more excited about it and they'll go back and try and attack it. And I think. It just speaks to an evolving market, right? That's the way many of these emerging markets had, had kind of moved forward. But, you know, the general mood in our sense is in the economy and among the investor community has been reasonably positive the last couple of quarters anyway, uh, as, you know, there's a, we've seen from record highs in the stock market, right, the barometer that, that sort of tests that. Uh, but it really hasn't manifested itself in the number of PE deals yet. There's... Um, I think a number of issues Steve touched on them. Inflation, you know, tight monetary policy, uh, the manufacturing performance has been subdued, and challenges uh, that are keeping India from, you know, getting back to its 7% plus GDP growth scenario, which I think people, that trajectory is what people were anticipating. And uh, all this has had an impact on the capital needs of Indian corporates and, and PE activity, I think, in general. Um, but I, there's been a few, you know, positives globally, which hopefully will, you know, impact deal activity. I think stable or lower you know, crude prices help uh, some of the manufacturing uh, in India. And S&P raised the outlook on India's sovereign debt uh, recently. Uh, and I think the new prime minister you guys touched on uh, is having an impact, sort of, you know, getting around, meeting with many of the top trading partners uh, that are out there, um, you know, from the U.S. and Japan and China, et cetera. And I think that's just you know trying to you know drive more coordination, cooperation, and investment uh, back and forth. Um, and, and you know there's a program that uh, Stevie may know about called Make Make in India, which I think is starting starting to uh, get the the uh, manufacturing cycle back uh, and, and, and get demand you know kicked up a little bit in that regard, which I think could bode well for private equity because private equity tends to like those types of ent- entities. Um, so this should augur well, I think, for the overall prospects and sentiments of investors towards India, uh, and, and I think the, you know the scenario should continue to improve. But I think it'll be slow, and it'll move in waves, as I, I touched on uh, at the beginning of my comments. I, Mike's Mike's analysis, I think, is is right on target. Um, just about everyone who travels to India, their first impression is that it's a, a country of opposites. Uh, and that, I think, holds true in the financial markets and in private equity as well. Uh, so there, there is this punctuated um, equilibrium, as it were, uh, in the growth of just about anything in India. Uh, and in the case of private equity, uh, uh, a, a new wave of investors um, will encounter some of the same problems, but things will gradually get better. Uh, The expansion of trade relationships and the enticement of bringing Japan, um, uh, among others, uh, into India to do manufacturing, I think will have a very positive effect. And essentially, the whole time I was there, every day in the the financial press, uh, there was discussion of of, uh, Modi's initiatives in this regard. Uh, that um, uh, that that can be the the booster shot that uh, the Indian economy really needs. But we'll see how it plays out. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.